0: So our scripture for today comes from Jonah 4, and if you would stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. So Jonah chapter 4, verse, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 through four eleven. When God saw what the people of Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah So that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Every week in uh, this series of Jonah that we've been in, we have had a a creative response written by uh, members of our uh, community. This week's response to Jonah 4 was written by Courtney Albin. She wasn't able to be here, and so I'll be uh, reading it. God, I don't understand your indiscriminate love. I'm confused by the way your mercy moves, by the doors you hold open, by the tables you prepare, by the invitations you extend. I don't understand your love. God, I'm tired of your patient justice, tired of waiting for your liberation to catch up with my longing for the tables to be flipped, for the systems to be uprooted, for the cities to be rebuilt. I'm tired of your justice. God, I'm scared of your unexpected grace, scared of the places it might show up, of the people it might reach, of the sins it may cover, of the punishment it may spare. God, I'm scared of your grace. We're in the last week of August, which means we're in the final week of our series on the book of Jonah. It's been quite a ride this last month, as we've been learning more about and digging deeper into a story that is often just known for a big fish. We've talked about the nature and character of God. we talked about running from responsibility, about desperate prayers and what they reveal about us. And last week we talked about the importance of praying Impossible prayers in the face of overwhelming odds and seeing breakthrough. Last week, Dana brought the good news. Nineveh repented from the king of Assyria all the way down to the animals. Nineveh repented. The calamity that was foretold was averted. God changed his mind. Jonah saved the day, and they all lived happily ever after. Except that's not how the story goes. So we're just going to jump right in. Chapter 4, verse 1, But seeing the Ninevites repent and God relent was very displeasing to Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? I don't think I'm adding too much with the attitude. I think that's (laughs) implicit in in the text. This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. I knew. In week one of the series, when we considered what kind of God we believe in, what kind of God Jonah believed in, you know, Jonah was given instructions by God, but he went and did the opposite. And right? he, went, he went west instead of east. He went to the open sea instead of inland. He went to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. Now, in week one, you know, I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Nineveh was the epitome of evil, the seat of the oppressor, the embodiment of all that threatened Jonah's people. So going to Nineveh was like going to hell for Jonah. It's understandable that he wouldn't want to go. But here in chapter 4, Jonah is revealed. There is no doubt of which to give the benefit. His motivations are fully on display. His irritation, his anger, his prejudice is all on display. I knew it, he said. You can hear the pout. You can hear the sullenness. Have you ever had an argument with a loved one and noticed how easy it is to slip into absolutes? You never do this or you always do that. Now deep in our rational mind, in our frontal cortex, there's a still small voice whispering that you know that's not true. But in an argument, your reptilian brain just wants to win, right? Just trying to land a blow. Anyone else? Okay, good, that's really encouraging for me. <laughs> that's what Jonah does here, but sort of the opposite. Like he's, he's pretty much quoting from the description of God in Exodus 34, but he's, he's, he's emphasizing all of the good things like they're bad things, okay? Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I knew you were like that, Jonah says, and he makes it sound like a bad thing. But he leaves out the subsequent verses in Exodus 34, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jonah leaves that out because that's the part he's yet to see, isn't it? He's sort of leaving this blank space and saying, you're all of these things and... He's waiting for God to step in and say, yes, I am all of those things, and I am also these things. I'm all of those good things, but I'm also just, I don't let the evil get away with their wrongdoing. And in fact, come to think of it, Nineveh's wrongdoing is too much to forgive after all. That's what he's hoping. He's hoping that God will relent from his relenting and repent from his repenting and bring his judgment on a deserving city. And just like a child throwing a tantrum, Jonah goes into full-on sulk mode. Verse 3, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, you can hear this patient parent, is it right for you to be angry? And then Jonah, not replying, (laughs) went out of the city, (laughs) sat down east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. Waiting to see if God would change his mind again. Now let's pause here for a moment. What do you think about Jonah right now? Is he, is he you know, how do you feel about him? Is he a good guy? Is he justified? Is he a spoiled, immature, vengeful little man? How about we make this personal? Because, as we've said before, Jonah is a mirror for us to face and see ourselves. Our own unwillingness to obey God when we're asked to do the right thing. Our own selfish tendencies, our own avoidance of responsibility. And we get that, right? We 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 feel that. Those things make sense in principle, even if addressing them in practice, it requires some discipline. But how do we feel when God's grace is shown to our enemies? And since it may feel improper to call anyone your enemy, let's put it this way. Who do you think doesn't deserve God's grace? Or because you still might not be able to say that out loud, to whom do you not want to or find it hard to show grace? And that enmity, it may be a feeling inside of you. But it also may be shown, as was the case with Jonah, by your action or inaction. You don't want to be in a room with them. You don't want to sit at a table with them. You don't want to be kind to them, and frankly, you don't want others to be kind to them either. I shared this story a a few years ago. When I was in boarding school in England, I was about 16, I knew a guy. We were in the same house, sort of like Harry Potter type houses, we were in the same house there was no magic <laughs> we saw each other a decent amount uh, but we weren't that close, he was in the year above me um, but we would play soccer together occasionally and one day I was in a friend's room um, just sitting and hanging out uh, one afternoon sitting at his desk and this guy came in looking for my friend my friend had stepped out and so you know, this guy asks you know, where's so and so and I said I don't know, Uh, and I just turned around, turned back around. And apparently, I said it in a way that did not uh, go over well, because the next thing I know, this guy's got me in a chokehold, and he's got me pinned to the desk, and he's shouting at me, don't don't disrespect me, don't disrespect me. To this day, I don't know what it was (laughs) that I did to disrespect him. But I knew that this guy who was bigger and stronger than me could cause some damage if he didn't let up soon. Fortunately, for me, his rage passed before I passed out and storms out of the room, right? And I'm left there. I'm feeling angry. I'm frustrated and humiliated. and A whole bunch of other emotions. And I'm thinking about how I can get back at him, you know, how I can report him, How how can I make him feel the way he made me feel? In that moment, he was my enemy. Who is your enemy? The friend who hurt you, a boss or a coworker, an ex, a parent, a family member. Maybe it's a politician, or a government, or a whole demographic, a whole group of folks. Whoever it is that you'd call them, as in us versus them. Maybe you think it's justified. I mean, how could it not be justified when we think of, you know, repressive and cruel governments, or violent extremists, or, you know, human traffickers, or big businesses making a profit off of the backs of the poor? or at the expense of our world and our future, how could it not be justified? Now consider this, if whoever came to your mind, whoever you consider your enemy right now, if they repented and they apologized and they turned from their ways and they made amends and God's judgment was turned away and they didn't get what you think they deserved, how would you feel? When God's grace shows up for someone else, especially someone you think doesn't deserve it, someone you think is in the wrong, how do you feel? How do you respond to someone you think is evil or awful or misguided or just plain wrong? How do you respond to someone who has caused you hurt or harm? Maybe, if we're honest, a little like Jonah. Hold on to that awareness as we keep going. Verse 6, the Lord God appointed a bush. And he made it come up over Jonah, give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And asked that he might die, he said, it's better for me to die than to live. It's the second time he said that. Once again, in this story, God uses and utilizes creation to accomplish his purposes. He appointed a bush and he appointed a worm. Just as earlier, he appointed a big fish. It's the same word in Hebrew. God speaks through creation. God uses creation to interact with us. Now, that's not the main point of Jonah by any means, but what it does remind me of is it reminds me of the value of God's creation and of God's creatures. Okay? Many of you have, have, have probably seen uh, the devastating footage of the wildfires in the Amazon rainforest that have been hitting the news this last week. Some of the fires were ones originally set by cattle ranchers and loggers to clear land, and then they got out of control. But th- this is the scenario that I first learned as regards to deforestation in school twenty plus years ago. It's the same thing is happening now. Get this: there have been over seventy thousand fires detected in the Amazon rainforest this year alone. Seventy thousand. The rainforest is such a rich, and vibrant, and biodiverse ecosystem that it's estimated that there are or were 390 billion individual trees divided into 16,000 species. That's to say nothing of the, the the richness of the of the wildlife or of the the indigenous tribes that call Amazonia home. This is what I read about the potential repercussions in the Atlantic this week. Even if people were to replant half a continent's worth of trees. The diversity of creatures across Amazonia, once lost, will not be replenished for roughly 10 million years, and that is 33 times longer than Homo sapiens as a species has existed. Lord, have mercy on us. This is why it's so important for us to care for God's creation and God's creatures And that's one reason I'm grateful for for Dana's leadership in the Creation Care Seminar this month and in our larger efforts to, to become better stewards and protectors of what God has made. Part of our calling as human beings, let alone as Christians, is to steward and protect this world of ours. That's in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And that means caring for things beyond ourselves, beyond our narrow spheres of interest beyond our wants, and our inclinations, and our comforts. That's a lesson from Jonah, as we see in these, these next verses. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, you're concerned about the bush, which is a very generous interpretation of what Jonah is really concerned about. Jonah's really concerned about himself, right? His own comfort. But God is, God is gracious. You are concerned about the bush, for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It, it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's where the story of Jonah leaves off. It's the only book in the Bible that ends with a question, even if it is a rhetorical one. In week one of this series, we talked about what kind of God we believe in and how the kind of God we believe in informs the kind of people we are to be because we are made in the image of God. In other words, we're made to represent and be like God. And this is why theology is important. Jewish scholar Erica Brown writes throughout this book, the book of Jonah, Jonah's theological beliefs become a persistent obstruction in his ability to become God's true servant. The question of whether God, the world, and the prophet are more motivated by mercy or justice is offered up in this introduction. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Amittai means truth. So Jonah is the son of truth. If God is driven more by compassion than strict and rigid truth, then the humans made in his image must also follow this path, suspending justice when grace offers the more tender option. A few years ago, Pope Francis said in a homily, where the Lord is, there is mercy. Where the Lord is, there is mercy. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his compassion is over all that he has made. The hard word for Jonah is that God's goodness and compassion stretch to all, even the oppressor, even the wrongdoer, even the perpetrator. That's a hard word for anyone who's been on the receiving end of hurt or harm, right? That's a hard word for anyone who's ever been marginalized. God's goodness and compassion stretch to all including the one or ones who wronged you. And I say this not to pile on. This is not a you have to have compassion on your enemy. You have to care for the ones who hurt you. I say this rather as a reminder of the call and the invitation of God to love and life. I'm not saying we should stay in toxic relationships or harmful community or that we just let wrongdoers off the hook to hurt more people. I'm not saying we don't, protest or we don't stand up to things that we see are wrong but what are you praying for what are you praying for how are you moving toward forgiveness and compassion and blessing Cuban born ethicist Miguel de la Torre in considering some of the numerous examples of oppression he asks well if hatred isn't is not an appropriate response for one who has been oppressed or is being oppressed what would, be? what would be an appropriate response? And he says the same responses that God probably sought from Jonah, compassion and pity. Pity for their lack of humanity and their inability to gain salvation. Pity for the masks of superiority they are forced to wear. Compassion that they too are trapped in a harmful construct of reality. Pity that by continuously profiting at the expense of their marginalized neighbors, they have become disconnected from their own spirituality. Compassion and pity promote empathy instead of hatred. This is the beginning of the path to reconciliation and of bringing grace, salvation, and liberation from evil to the oppressor and the oppressed alike. See, I would suggest that The amount of compassion and care we have for others is a reflection of the depths to which we have truly received God's love. The amount of compassion and care we have for others is a reflection of the depths to which we have truly received God's love. Jonah didn't get that. Here's what one theologian observed. Jonah wants to receive God's grace without being changed by it, and at the same time to snatch it away from those whose lives are, in fact, changed by it. Jonah's name means dove, which is a symbol of peace and blessing. It's ironic that he is angry and judgment-seeking, isn't it? In chapter 1, Jonah chooses to disobey God rather than do the right thing. In chapter 2, when he's rescued from death by God, he prays this desperate and penitent prayer and thanks God for being delivered. And yet, when God rescues others who have relented from their sin and disobedience, Jonah sulks and he broods and he hopes that they'll get their comeuppance after all. This is Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. Rather, the core message of Jonah's story is embodied in Jesus Christ. This is what he said. This is what Jesus said. Luke 6. But I say to you that listen, and it would be so easy just to skip over that. I say to those of you that listen, that are paying attention, that are hearing, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold, even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. And Jesus is, is talking about a, a particular kind of resistance. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, well, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful. Just as your father is merciful, (laughs) love your enemies. Now The word love doesn't appear in the book of Jonah, but it's the concept that lies at the heart of Jonah's story. Loving one's enemies is the crux of the rhetorical question that God closes out with. Loving one's enemies is what God does because that's what God is like and that's what Jesus embodied. Jesus is everything God is like and everything God wanted to say to us in a person. Jonah would not repent over a whole city's, would not rejoice over a whole city's repentance. What did Jesus say? There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous ones who will not. When God asks at the end of Jonah, should I not be concerned? The word for concerned in Hebrew, chus, it quite literally means to have tears in one's eyes. In Luke 19, when Jesus looked out over Jerusalem, he wept. Jerusalem, the wayward city, the city outside of whose walls he would die. He wept. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived and died protesting the atrocities of the Nazis in World War II, wrote this, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. He lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. And so the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his or her commission. There is their work. And then he quotes Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you were doing, who would ever have been spared? The invitation of Jesus, the invitation of God that Jonah rejected is to love our enemies. To love is not just having fuzzy feelings about something or someone, but rather in the words of St. Thomas Aquinas, to love is to will the good of the other. To will the good of the other of the other. Love as Jesus understood it is a God-enabled act of the will. It is a choice to put the other person before yourself. It's about seeking the good the good of the other in tangible action like as Jesus said being generous to your enemies and praying for them and blessing them and doing to them what you would want done to you if you were in their shoes and that requires empathy, doesn't it? It requires you making a conscious decision of the will to put yourself in their shoes, to identify with where they're at and to associate with them. Now it's not that feeling has no part to play with this kind of love, but it's not the main part. And so even if I don't feel loving towards someone, I can still be loving toward them by willing and acting for their good. When I was a kid and I got on my parents' nerves, they still fed me. Most of the time, I'm just kidding, all of the time. They still cared for me. They may not have felt particularly loving to me because of whatever way I had been disobedient or unruly, but they loved me, and so they still did things that were good for me. It was only afterwards, sometimes long afterwards, that I was able to appreciate and understand their love. Now I hope that all of you can think of times in your life when someone really loved you, even when you weren't, you know, pulling your weight at school or, or at work or when you were in a destructive relationship or when you were slipping into a cycle of addiction or acting out or when you knew you shouldn't be doing something but you really wanted to or when you didn't want to do something that you knew you should. I really hope all of you had someone who loved you enough to will your good, maybe tell you something you didn't want to hear in that moment. I hope you still do. That's love. That's the kind of love Jesus was about. That's the kind of love we're trying to be about here at Christ City. That's the kind of love I'm trying to learn, the kind of love I want to show everyone. This kind of love, it envelops every single person in an embrace of acceptance and welcome because that's what Jesus did. And because of the depth of this affection, this love seeks and steers them toward their highest God-defined good. But why would we do this for our enemies? Why would we do good to those who hate us and bless those who curse us and all of that? Well, as Jesus points out, it's pretty easy to find people who only love those who love them back, right? Almost everyone does that. Here in D.C., we see how people can do good to others as a sort of deposit on getting paid back later. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, or I've done this good deed for you, so you kind of owe me, or tell me what you can do for me before I decide what I'm going to do for you. It may not be explicit, there's sort of a, a give and take there. But, but God didn't just want to give the Ninevites what they deserve. And, God, and, and, and Jesus doesn't just settle for the world's definition of love, that does the bare minimum. That's not good enough. He invites us instead to a higher standard, a higher way of living, a love that goes far beyond the letter of the law. This is a kingdom kind of love, and at first glance, it seems kind of naive and self-defeating. When I'm finding it hard to love, I'm reminded of the reasons that Martin Luther King Jr. gave for why we should love our enemies. I need to be reminded of these things. First, he said, hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Right? If you hurt me and I hurt you, and then you hurt me and I hurt you, and the cycle just keeps going on, inflicting wound after wound. Dr. King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred, Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Love is the only thing that can heal and restore and reconcile and break a cycle of sin and destruction. It's the only thing. Second, he said hate, it actually distorts the personality of the hater. Hate at any point is a cancer that gnaws away at the very vital center of your life and your existence. It is like eroding acid that eats away the best and the objective center of your life. So Jesus says love because hate destroys the hater as well as the hated. When you hold a grudge, when you cling to bitterness or rage or unforgiveness, when your being is bent on revenge or animosity or contempt, your soul shrivels because our souls were made for God. They were made for embrace and relationship and love. And so when we do the opposite, our souls become less. They become smaller. They become thinner and stretched. Like butter scraped over too much bread. Dr. King's third reason why we should love our enemies was that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power that there in love that eventually transforms individuals. Because if you hate your enemies, well, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. Jonah wanted to reserve God's goodness and compassion for those he deemed worthy. He knew but didn't want to accept that God's goodness and compassion were for all, not just you and your friends and those who are like you, all people, not just a certain nationality or race or ethnic or socioeconomic group, all people, not just those, with, you know, those who seem to have it all together with connections and, 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 and degrees and potential, all, all people. Whoever your Ninevites are, whoever your enemies are, the call of Jesus is to love our enemies so that they might know the redemptive and transformative power of the love of God and so that we might actually experience it more fully. I think Jonah probably believed all of that in theory, but it became real when he had to do something about it. Where the rubber hits the road is when you're done listening to me and the lights, you know, after we're done singing and the lights go up and you encounter people. People are messy. At work, at play, in families, in friendships, in church too. That's where the challenge is to actually love your enemies, to show others through your words and your actions what the love of God can do. Here's another reason why we should love our enemies. They might be closer to God than we are. It's not not a guarantee, but it's possible. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. He was part of God's chosen people. He was appointed to deliver God's message to God's enemies. Except every single other character we meet in this story is more receptive to God than Jonah was. One of the lessons of Jonah's story is that you and I are Jonah, which means that you and I could be wrong. (laughs) And acknowledging and allowing for that possibility should mean we approach life and other people, including those we consider in the wrong, with humility and grace, because they may not be as wrong as we thought. As we round the final turn, I want to, Share the key to all of this. This is the secret to loving your enemies. This is the the gold. How to do it. How to love your enemies. It's pretty simple. It starts with you knowing that God loves you. It starts with you knowing that God loves you, that God says to you as he said to Jesus in Luke 3, you are mine, I love you. You are mine, I love you. That's what formed the foundation of Jesus' identity. It's what allowed him to endure everything he did because he knew he was loved by God. From what I see in Jonah, I wonder if he really knew that. In the beginning of the story, Jonah didn't trust God's instructions were life because they seemed hard, and so he ran away. On the boat, Jonah preferred death over obeying God. And then in choosing to deliver the message to the Ninevites, he only gave them half the story, He gave them the fire and brimstone piece. He didn't talk about God's mercy and love, the possibility for repentance and change. And so here in chapter 4, it sort of fits the pattern that he prioritized his own comfort and preferences over the lives and souls of others. Now, I don't say this. Please, no, I don't say all of this. To stand in judgment over anyone here, it's a challenging and convicting reminder for all of us, for all of us, But if you know you are loved by God, you can love your enemies. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are rooted in God's love, you can stand firm in that love. See, I could say, go love your enemies because Jesus says so, and that would not be wrong. But it would be more right to say, go love your enemies because God loves you. For God so loved Nineveh that he sent Jonah, that whoever believed him would not die, but have life. But Jonah didn't quite get it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him and trusts in him would not die but have eternal life. While we were still sinners, the apostle Paul said, Christ died for us. And that's how God demonstrated his love. Even though we didn't deserve it, even before we knew we needed it, even when we were still enemies of God, God loved us. And sent his son to demonstrate this love. And every day we receive new mercies. Every day we receive new opportunities. That's what the Father is like. Pouring out blessing on blessing, even on the wicked and the ungrateful. And I count myself in that. That's what makes the gospel and the Christian faith so amazing and so unique and yet so challenging and controversial at the same time. It's the story of an enemy-loving God who showed his love by sending his son, his enemy-loving son, to give his life for his enemies so that his enemies might become his friends. That doesn't play in the political sphere. When I was looking back over the my life to think of someone I uh, would have called my enemy I recalled that moment in boarding school in an instant it's hard to forget Simon and I played soccer later that afternoon and he came up to me Uh, I didn't know what he was going to say or what he was going to do I wasn't sure how I was going to respond but even in those few hours Jesus had already been working in my heart so that even before he apologized he had already been forgiven That incident is part of my experience. It's part of my life. colors who I am. But it does not have control of me because I trust that God's love is stronger than anyone's misdirected hatred. That God's forgiveness is powerful enough to make me new and to overflow from me to others and that God's kingdom is the ultimate reality. We follow a man named Jesus who can take our pain and our hurt, and our hate, and our anger, and our bitterness, and our prejudice, and our sin, and replace it with love, even for our enemies. In God's kingdom, that which we pray to see more of here on earth, the mighty and proud are brought down low, and the lowly and marginalized are raised up. In that kingdom, in that world, God has the final word. God's love overcomes. That's what Jesus came to show. That's what he did show on the cross. And even there, even then, he said, what did he say? Forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Even there, even then, to an undeserving bandit, he said, you're welcome in my kingdom. It's no wonder, then, that the writer of James, who may have been Jesus' own brother, said this mercy triumphs over judgment mercy triumphs over judgment that was a description of his own experience of how God loved him through Jesus that was a description of how Jesus lived his life and think about it that's a four-word summary of the story of Jonah isn't it mercy triumphs over judgment the story of Jonah is told and retold every year at the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's interesting to think about it, isn't it? Whose repentance and whose atonement are we supposed to consider from this story? Is it the sailors? Is it the Ninevites? Is it Jonah? It's us, isn't it? It's ours. It's our own failure to rightly and truly and wholly bear the image of God who is love, the God whose compassion and mercy and grace extend to all, even God's enemies. For that is what we were. And so to close, I'd like for us all to pray together a prayer that is uh, sometimes prayed during Yom Kippur. It's a commitment to act in response to the love of God. The words will be on the screen. So I invite you to, to join me in saying these words together. What shall it be? What form will it take? Let us repair what can still be repaired. Let us give back the gain we earned by injustice. Let us make peace with our uninjured brother or sister. Let us restore the person we wronged. Let us admit what is false in ourselves. Let us put right what is wrong in our family life. Let us not sour the joy of living. May God give us the courage to do these things and help us to rebuild our lives. And when we have finished our tasks, may he permit us to enjoy the light sown for the righteous so that he can delight in us. The gates of his mercy are still open. Let us enter in. Would you pray with me? The gates of his mercy are still open. Let us enter in. O God, our enemy-loving God, thank you for loving us. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts, transforming us by the power of your love and through us transforming our world. We pray these things in the name of the one who died so that we might live and who loved so that we might forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.